Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Chad Bray, coming to you from our studios here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, where the skies are blue, the weather is mild, and maybe, just maybe, we have just witnessed something of a defrosting in relations between China and the United States. It's been 10 years since the U.S. announced its pivot to Asia to counter the rise of China and the beginning of what has since escalated into a trade, tech, and accounting war. And it's been 50 years since we learned the French word détente, which described that period in the Cold War when the U.S. and the Soviet Union decided more could be gained by trading with each other rather than exchanging nuclear missile strikes. So what do we make of these comments made in the past 24 hours? The United States and China have no shortage of differences, but on climate, on climate, cooperation is the only way to get this job done. This is not a discretionary thing, frankly. This is science. It's math and physics that dictate the road that we have to travel. In the area of climate change, there is more agreement between China and the U.S. and divergence, making it an area with huge potential for cooperation. And that's John Kerry, U.S. climate envoy, and his Chinese counterpart, C.A. Junhua. But as we've seen over the past few days and learned over the past few years, a changing climate has many complex variations. Just days before these historic announcements came news that a group of U.S. congressmen had made a surprise visit to Taiwan. And we'll hear from our U.S. correspondent, Owen Churchill, on what was announced and how China reacted. And later in the podcast, we'll hear from our colleague on the China desk, William Jung, and he's going to tell us about a historic announcement tonight that's been pitched as changing China's history. But much more, it's about China's future, particularly under Xi Jinping. There's signs of change in the geopolitical climate, or are we just sitting in the eye of the storm? Let's find out. Owen Churchill is our correspondent based in San Francisco. Welcome, Owen. Hi, Chad. Good to be here. After months, if not years, of rising tensions between the U.S. and China, it seems both countries have found something they agree on. Take us through this announcement that seemingly has taken everyone by surprise. Well, absolutely, Chad. It was completely out of the blue. Going into this COP26 summit in Glasgow, tensions between the U.S. and China, they were tense, you know, as they've been for, for much of the past few years. Um, and even actually in the early days of the summit last week, there were signs that things were not going smoothly between the two because obviously Xi Jinping did not attend in person. And Biden shot back at that um, in his address to the summit and said, you know, this is basically China walking away from the climate issue. And so there were no signals to us that there was going to be any kind of significant breakthrough in terms of US-China collaboration on this. But then on Wednesday, late on Wednesday night in Glasgow, there was this sudden press conference convened by Xi Jinping, who's the chief climate negotiator for China, 
followed by John Kerry, who's his counterpart in the US. And they, they unveiled this joint declaration, which basically sets out a number of commitments that the US and China agreed to make over the next decade, ranging from things like methane reduction to actions to protect forests from illegal deforestation, the establishment of a working group that will continue to meet regularly throughout the, the 2020s, and also um, steps to improve technical and information exchanges. And at these press conferences, um, there was a real sign from both Xie and Kerry that they recognized that you know, even though there are these tensions in the US-China relationship, the climate crisis has basically come to a point where they need to work together no matter what, no matter what else is happening in the relationship. And I think the most striking thing for me is that this comes after multiple warnings from Beijing that we're not going to work with you on climate change, on nuclear non-proliferation, on other global issues. In their, in their mind, while you continue to assail us on these other areas of the, the relationship. And now this is the strongest sign yet that actually those were probably just rhetoric when it came to Beijing's position. Beijing is willing to cooperate with Washington. It is willing to exchange information about climate change and to coordinate on those shared goals. As for what it means for wider relations, we don't really know just yet. And Kerry on Wednesday night said quite explicitly, this is not us ignoring all of our differences with Beijing. But what he really wants to do is to say, we're going to isolate the climate track from these other grievances we have. We want to keep them separate. And I'm sure that Republicans will kind of jump on that and other critics of the administration will jump on that to say, well, you're, you're parking aside these our concerns about human rights for the sake of progress on climate. But I think another way to look at it is that they're trying to basically just keep these as separate items and actually try and prevent Beijing from, from creating any kind of linkage between the two. Now, you talk about separating this issue from the broader geopolitical discussion between the U.S. and China. Now, we've spoken a lot about the U.S. focus on Xinjiang and its major role in the global supply chain for solar panels. Did this come up in the discussions? Yeah, it did come up, in fact, at the press conference with John Kerry. He was pressed on whether or not specifically the issue of solar panels came up in the various discussions that the two sides have had leading up to this announcement. And of course, the US administration has a number of concerns about potential forced labor in China's solar supply chain and has put one supplier on a blacklist, an importing blacklist. So that's been a very prominent part, as you said, it's been a very prominent part of engagements with China. But Kerry basically said that, well, yes, there are these concerns we have, but my job is I'm the climate guy and my job is not to raise issues of human rights or to try and get China to commit to X, Y, and Z on the human rights front. He said, that's not my lane, that's for others in the administration to pursue. But you can be assured that those issues are not going to go away and, and others in the administration are, are likely to continue to be vocal about them and possibly take even further actions such as more sanctions. Now, on one side of the world, we've got John Kerry talking about this moment being akin to Washington and Moscow agreeing to scale down their nuclear arsenals to end the Cold War. And over in Taiwan, we've got a surprise visit by U.S. congressman. Can you take us through that? What happened? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was another case of not knowing that it had happened until it happened. 
there was a group of US lawmakers, four senators and two members of the House of Representatives, we later learned, um, arrived late Tuesday evening, I think it was, Taiwan time. Um, they arrived on a US naval plane. Um, so, you know, with a degree of, of backing from the federal government, they arrived. And as far as we know, they've, they've had an itinerary which has been organized by the kind of de facto US embassy in Taiwan assisted them with their with their travel and they've been meeting with administration officials senior administration officials discussing you know various components of of US policy towards Taiwan and US support for the island and i think it's although it's not unprecedented for lawmakers from the US to travel to other parts of the world including Taiwan and you'll remember there was an, there was another visit a kind of unofficial delegation earlier this year but what's slightly different this time is that Obviously, tensions are at you know an even even higher point um, than they were half a year ago, and also a, a number of those who made the trip, including Senator Corn, and they've signed on to a new piece of legislation in Congress, which would ramp up U.S. support for Taiwan. It would allocate a specific amount of funding to go towards Taiwan every year for its defense purposes, which would be matched by the Taiwanese government in return. Um, so there's there's a lot of momentum within Congress for more support, more U.S. support for Taiwan. And in fact, I think there's there are a number of signs that the administration is leaning towards in that direction too. Biden has made a number of statements expressing explicit support for Taiwan. And although a number of them have kind of maybe outstepped the typical position of that Washington takes and the members of the administration have had to kind of walk back on them slightly. I think it, it still is a signal that he, he is very much favors a strong policy of support for Taiwan. And in the background to all of this, we've had the ongoing situation where the U.S. has not had an ambassador based in Beijing ever since Joe Biden assumed the presidency. What's changed on that front? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's pretty shocking, actually. The U- U.S. administration, I think, at the moment only has five ambassadors that have been confirmed. And you contrast that to the previous administration where Terry Branstad, who was Trump's Beijing envoy, was in, I think he was in Beijing by May, or at least he was confirmed by May of that, that first year of the administration. We're now in November, 10 months into the administration, and the most you know, by all accounts and purposes, the most critical relationship for the U.S. is not represented with someone on the ground in Beijing. Now, that's for a number of reasons. The nomination itself came quite late in August as the administration was kind of figuring out what's our position going to be on China, on trade, militarily, in the State Department. But then at the same time, there's been a lot of holdups in Congress and a lot of acrimonious infighting between Republicans and Democrats about these nominations. But last week, we saw some movement on that when the Senate Foreign Relations Committee moved more than a dozen political appointee nominations out of the committee stage and onto what will be a wider vote in the Senate. And in the case of Nicholas Burns, who was one of those who was approved last week, there's been really widespread support from him from both sides of the aisle. There was only one objection in the committee vote, but really he's been, you know, he's viewed as a seasoned diplomat, politically quite balanced. He was the ambassador to NATO during the um, the Bush administration. He was a foreign policy advisor at the State Department during the Barack Obama administration. So he's been on both sides of the aisle. And 
I think critically, when it comes to getting Republican support, he signaled that he will walk a very tough line when it comes to Beijing. And he's gone so far as to call China the United States' most dangerous competitor, which is, you know, is even stronger language than many other senior officials in the administration use. Um, so that's reassured Republicans, I think. And I think a sign of the times is that Ted Cruz, who has a track record of halting, you know, whether it's a bill backed by Democrats on China or whether it's other nominees on, you know, giving them a really hard time in committee hearings about their track record on China. He's actually taken a step back on this one and said, I'm not going to hold up this nomination because the US-China relationship is just too critical. And it's, you know, it's got to a point where, we desperately need to have someone representing our interests in China. Now, the U.S. Congress has a pretty full agenda right now with the infrastructure bill just passed and a lot on the agenda around climate. How does this fit into that? That's right. It just so happens that this movement through the committee comes when the Senate and the Congress as a whole, in fact, is really preoccupied with Biden's domestic agenda, with his social spending bill, the the big omnibus climate and social spending bill that's currently kind of in limbo amid some opposition from from those even within his own party. So whether or not there'll be a vote in the near future remains to be seen. The office of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been pretty quiet on this so far. But once there is a window on the Senate floor for a vote, you can you know you can certainly expect that it will just be a formality. There's not going to be any meaningful opposition to his um, nomination. Now, is there any indication when he might take up the job, this, quote, critical matter, as Ted Cruz says, of having an ambassador to Beijing? How soon does it actually get resolved? Well, there's not actually a specific time that we can say at the moment. Um, It's likely to be, I would say, a matter of weeks rather than months uh, and weeks rather than days. But yet it's completely at the moment, it seems to be completely hostage to these other negotiations in the Senate over this big bill. But once those are cleared, then the confirmation will happen and then he could be on a plane to Beijing the next day. Well, I'm sure in the interim, Ted Cruz will have a lot to focus on, particularly other Sesame Street characters who may be looking to get a vaccination. Owen Churchill, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Chad. Now, we appreciate you joining us here on the China Geopolitics podcast, but don't forget about our podcast sibling here at the SCMP, the Inside China podcast. They'll be putting out two special episodes over the next few days. Tomorrow, Mimi Lau will be presenting a special episode looking at exactly what Xi Jinping will announce as part of the Chinese Communist Party 6th plenum and how this might change the course or at least the story of China's history. And early next week, you can hear a deep dive special on exactly what China has agreed to and what needs to happen for it to reach its 2030 emissions targets it agreed to as part of the COP26 conference in Glasgow. I have it on very good authority. The answers are electric. We'll be right back in about 30 seconds. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. I've got one of our senior correspondents on the China Desk, William Jung, here with me for a preview of this event that's dominated the news from China this week. This thing, it's known as the Six Plenum. William, welcome back. 
Thank you, Chuck. As we speak, there's 200 members of China's Central Committee about to vote on what is described as a, quote, historical resolution, end quote, on the achievements of the Chinese Communist Party. What exactly is this document? This document on the surface talk about party history, but its main purpose is to regulate the party's uh, ideology from now onwards towards the next decades that's to come. China is a country that's very proud of its long history. So CCP itself is no exception, especially after Xi took over at uh, 2020. He is very, um, we can say, obsessed with uh, guarding the party's uh, history, not allowing the liberals to interpret it or tear it down. Instead, he wants to strengthen it, build up a strong red narrative officially so that nobody can attack the history. And from the history, he wants to draw some key lessons of which, I mean, if you read from the state media, some of the key lessons would be the party is the greatest uh, contributor to China's success and uh, it's capable of learning uh, from past mistakes and uh, we should continue on doing that and strengthen the party's control. He is using that history to build up what's going after that. So while we talk about its uh, historical resolution, it's actually forward-looking on the next decade or the the few decades to come. There are only two previous such documents been released before. One was by Mao in 1945. That was un- after he did his Yan An rectification, where he rooted out all the people who are not listening to him, basically. And uh, he actually solidified his leadership after the resolution. The more famous one was the Deng Xiaoping one, that's in 1981, after the Cultural Revolution. Deng at that time uh, wanted to also unify the party's thoughts on the Cultural Revolution because there, there is a huge figure ahead of him, that's Mao. How are we going to deal with his mistakes and how are we going to go forward from here? That was also part of the, uh, the, the importance of the, the second historical document 40 years ago. Now, again, in this juncture, when the party has just celebrated its uh, 100 years anniversary, she is launching his version of historical resolution. Obviously, it's going to chart a major direction change for China. And uh, the primary anger would be, how are we going to steal China's ideology? How can the party gain a better control over China, especially facing all these uh, headwinds from its domestic uh, economic risks and uh, the continuous rivalry between China and US and the whole West, basically. So uh, from this aspect, Xi's document will be very important on determining how China would do in the next few decades. And from his end, um, you know, often you see uh, American presidents when they're their second term, you, you see it, 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 you know, prime ministers who have, have been through a number of elections start to think about sort of their historical significance of, of what they mean. And, and so is part of this also sort of defining she and, and his future as much as the future of the party? Yeah, except the Chinese does it in a much longer historical perspective, where she, you can say he's the fortunate president here, because he actually 
is the one stood at the 100 years anniversary. Of course, he wants to position himself as the one who inherited all the valuable things, uh, the party's thoughts, the party's uh, legacy. So how is he, after obtaining such status, going to steer the huge ship ahead? So that's the very interesting thing that we should observe. And, and William, uh, you wrote an analysis piece this week that that sort of looked at the the difference between when Mao and when uh, Deng were uh, you know doing their documents. And in that case, uh, those two former leaders were settling a power struggle. She doesn't seem to have that same kind of pushback. Yeah, when we look look back at the history, when Mao released his version of the historical resolution. Actually, he, he, has already, he had already more or less settled the power struggle. Same as Deng. When he launched that document, it's actually a very significant political signal that, hey guys, I am in control and here is the document to unify your thoughts and uh, please go home and read your homework. Basically, that, that was the thing. Uh, but what happened before, that was definitely a very strong and uh, prolonged party, uh, inner party power struggle, both in Mao and Deng's uh, era. But in case of Xi, no, I think when he came to power in 2012, he has purged most of the political rivals. And uh, in the previous five years, you could hardly see anyone who has the, ha- has the power to stood up against him. He has so much power where... Uh, Practically, a lot of decisions have to come to him before they can finalize it. So that's one very key difference where she does not really need that. Uh, arguably, many people think that uh, she needs that document to further solidify his status and all this. Personally, I think what he wanted to achieve is how is he going to be remembered in the party's history book and in China's history book as what kind of a leader and uh, achieve what kind of success and compared to his predecessors, how is he ranked among the greatest people? That's what he wanted. Instead of the short-term power struggle, uh, who is going to hold what province, that kind of thing, that's too small for him. I think he wants something much bigger. That's the thing he wants to be remembered. And, you know, as, as we get ready for this, you know, um, no one really does closed-door meetings like they do in Beijing. There's been absolutely zero leaks about this meeting since it began on Monday. You know, but what signals are, are, are being put out there by state media? You know, what, what, what are you hearing? What should we focus on? First of all, about the secrecy. She is the one made the Zhongnanhai and such meeting leak-proof. After he's, uh, he came to power, he gave very strict orders to all the party cadres, officials who are attending this meeting, no leaks to any media. In a way that made our job much more difficult, where the sources became so, so scarce. We could hardly talk to our friends in Beijing. But having said that, I think he prefers to do it very officially via all these official outlets like Xinhua, People's Daily, and all this. And you can see that uh, uh, all these official outlets are publishing a series of articles about Xi and his historical status. And uh, look at his past achievements. All the official media pointed out what are the challenges uh, faced by Xi in past few years. Of course, the pandemic 
COVID-19 pandemic is one. And they listed the Hong Kong turmoil in 2019 as one. And uh, obviously, China-US trade war and tech war and the later ongoing rivalry is another one. So they basically ranked all this as uh, Xi's success, where uh, he is the leader who led China in all these uh, moments. And uh, with that, they held him as a, an ailing leader for the future. So that's kind of kind of uh, building up the momentum for him towards next year's uh, 20th Party Congress, where we will see a major reshuffle of uh, the party's top leadership, where uh, more than half of those people will be retiring, where uh, we expect a group of uh, younger cadres who are loyal to Xi will be coming to power, where help him to look after his common prosperity, uh, help him to modernize China's uh, war machines, and uh, trying to help him to mitigate all the economic financial risks. He will have a new team under him, which will be very interesting to see how the new dynamic is going to come. William, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a major reshuffling within the, in the party next year. Uh, at the same time, uh, Xi Jinping is going to uh, – he's 68 now and is going to reach the sort of unofficial retirement age in China. Is there any sort of discussion about who could be his successor, particularly you know, in a time when he's being enshrined as the core of the Communist Party and a greater leader than Mao? Actually, at uh, central committee level or at the Politburo level, there is – no official retirement age per se. However, there has been an unspoken rule or unwritten rule saying that uh, most of the people should only serve two terms. That's a decade, 10 years. But uh, that's not black and white. The only thing that previously came with a term was the nation's presidency, which is also two terms. And uh, she has already uh, removed that. So strictly speaking now in China, there's no hard and fast rule saying that he should retire. Given China's current circumstances, shall we have an experienced hand to lead the country for another decade? That is what the official medias are trying to build up. In terms of age, there's no hard and fast rule. But he has already uh, officially abolished the two terms limit. And within the party, as long as he has enough support, he can go for extra terms. That's not really against any black and white rules. Now, other than enshrining himself in power, what else is on the agenda for this? You know, will we see mentions of, uh, say, for example, the more on common prosperity or or more on uh, anti-monopoly behavior and and th- these sorts of things that that have been in the news uh, most of the year this year. Actually, she has been trying to build the narrative of my policy are all continuation from the previous uh, great leaders like Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong. He had been talking about his common uh, prosperity perspective. Actually, came from Deng Xiaoping, where when Deng says that I want to let part of the Chinese become rich first, then we will redistribute the wealth to like achieve more common prosperity. So she said Deng has already done that for like after Deng, we have already done it for forty years. Now we are the world's 
uh, second largest economy, right? And uh, it's time to look at how we better distribute the wealth. Then many people very quickly realize that, uh, in fact, these are the problems that should have been tackled gradually. Personally, I think China is facing a problem of too many problems were unsolved. The biggest problem of the recent uh, economic turmoil was because too many things happened all at one juncture. She wanted to be remembered as the leader who made China strong. This has been repeated in the official media for so many times where Mao, who led the Chinese people to stand up against foreign oppression, where Deng makes the nation rich and affluent, and uh, she should be the one make it powerful and strong. By that, he's putting himself on par with the party's founders. And so, William, you, you mentioned that, that uh, you know, she wants China to be powerful, to be powerful on the world stage. Earlier this year, we had uh, U.S. President Joe Biden. He was addressing a joint uh, session of Congress. And he said the U.S. was in competition with China to, quote, win the 21st century, end quote. Will there be a similar mention of China's strategic rivals by Xi? I don't think so, because so far, all the message that we are seeing is no matter what's happening in the world, China must do its own things right. That has been the tone for since past year. And uh, that actually started during Trump's days when uh, there's waves and waves of sanctions and the tariffs and all this coming towards uh, contain China's growth or contain China's rise. But internally, his messaging has always been that uh, China need to do our own things right so the enemy will not be able to overcome us. And uh, we need to develop our own economy domestically so that uh, even externally the supply chain we we face problems and we our people will still have enough food our factories will have enough uh, uh, input to produce enough goods for the uh, domestic economy and our army will will continue to have enough supplies so basically that's that's his uh, strategy of ignoring the the US in his internal communications and in his external communications, he has chosen a very tactical approach. When he talk about uh, China's relationship with the United States, there is, I, I mean, they have been finally sitting down and uh, issued a joint uh, statement on how they are going to tackle environmental issues and uh, contain the carbon footprint and all this. But uh, for now, I don't think uh, that's going to be uh, Xi's key message now. This uh, document, this historical document, is largely for internal messaging towards all his 95 million party members. We have done well in the past 100 years, despite some hiccups, and there are great lessons to be learned, and let's go forward from here. So, William, it, it's going to be a very busy night. Uh, there's going to be an official readout, we think, sometime later tonight, and, and we'll look to scmp.com to see all your analysis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's all we have for this week, and there's a lot going on this week. So please keep an eye on scmp.com for breaking news and analysis. Also, you can follow the SEMP political economy team at SEMP Economy. I'm at Chad Bray. Stay safe. Have a good weekend. Bye for now. <laughs>